Okay, good evening, everyone. Can everyone hear me? Okay, great. Um, my name is Dr. John Collins. I'm Executive Director of the LSE Ideas International Drug Policy Project. Um, as many of you will probably know, LSE Ideas is a very active think tank at the London School of Economics. Our director, Professor Michael Cox, was actually just chairing an event here last night with uh, Gideon Rackman and Anne Applebaum on the Cold War. So we do a lot of events, and we're a very busy think tank. Um, and this event is one of them. So it's my genuine pleasure to welcome you all this evening on behalf of LSE Ideas. Um, tonight's event is part of the LSE's ninth uh, Space for Thought Literary Festival. And this is taking place this week under the title of Revolutions, or under the theme of Revolutions. And I think tonight's event fits very well with that kind of thematic focus, as I think David's presentation is going to highlight. Um, I must begin with a sad announcement. Uh, unfortunately, due to very unforeseen circumstances, Ms. Sharon Harvey and Mr. Richard Britton, who were initial, initially billed to speak tonight, actually can't make it. So we're very sorry that they won't be able to be here. Um, however, we're very lucky to have another great expert who was able to step in very kindly at the last minute, Mr. Tim Buckley. Um, before I introduce our speakers, I want to just say a couple of quick thank yous. Um, the first one is to LSE Ideas events manager, Adriana Zajanczkowska, who's here to my left. Um, when David and I spoke to Adriana many months ago about doing this event, we basically said we want to do something with photos and the literary festival and we don't know. And so over that time, Adriana has really taken it and coalesced it and produced what effectively curated the exhibit that you see out in the hall and has, has brought all of this together. So it's very much thanks to her that we're all here. Uh, I also want to say a big thank you to our communications officer, Joseph Barnsley, who has made sure that this has gotten a very good online presence and, as always, has put a lot of effort into it. And I want to thank the entire IDEAS, IDBP team, most of, here who, or most of whom are here. So Alex Soderholm, Sally Ann Oates, Frederick Thied, um, it's, it's a real pleasure to work with these guys, and we, we've, we've had a very busy month, so this event is really concluding what has been a lot of events this month. Okay, so it's, very, it's my pleasure tonight to welcome Dr. David Mansfield and Mr. Tim Buckley. Uh, Dave Mansfield, I'm delighted to say, has recently joined LSE Ideas International Drug Policy Project as a visiting senior fellow. Uh, Dave is a, well, a world-renowned expert in his field on Afghan rural opium production and rural development. He's currently working also as an independent consultant and advises a range of bilateral and multilateral and non-governmental organizations, including the UK government, including the European Commission, the World Bank, GTZ, as well as various NGOs and both policy and operational issues with regards to illicit drugs in Afghanistan and on alternative livelihoods in particular. Tim Buckley is Chief, o Chief Operating Officer of ALSIS. He's a well-known and respected uh, across geographic defense and intelligence networks. He served in the British Army for 10 years, and in, in that time he provided critical GIS insight, expertise, support, and advice to organizations worldwide. Uh, as a GIS revo remote and sensing expert with over 15 years' experience in conflict, uh, conflict and fragile environments, Tim has recently spent over two years working with the counter-narcotics and agricultural sectors in Afghanistan. So with our speakers introduced, um, I'm going to give a quick overview of what the theme is tonight. And it is around this idea of transformations in the Afghan desert. I'm sure many of you here, if not all of you, have seen the exhibit out in the, out in the hallway. If not, I hope that you'll see it afterwards. Um, but over the last 15 years, there's been a revolution in the deserts of, of south and southwest Afghanistan. Across the provinces of Helmand, Farah, Kandahar, and Nimraz, windswept sand and rock has been replaced by over 300,000 hectares of agricultural land. 
driven by population pressure, opium pro prohibition and conflict, over 1.2 million people have settled in what was once uninhabitable desert land. So this is really a revolution that we're talking about, I think. And the intersection between these complex issues of illicit drug production and globalization and green technology and all of these other factors I th and migration, I think, are all going to come out in this discussion tonight. So for those who use Twitter in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is LSE LitFest. I would ask you to please also make sure your phones are in silence so they don't go off during the event. And to, warn, to let you know that this event is being recorded and podcasted. So after the talk, David will actually be giving a personal guide of the uh, or personal tour of the uh, exhibit out in the hall, and there will be refreshments provided as well. So I hope that everybody does stay here to, to enjoy that. So with that said, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, and it's Dr. David Mansfield. So please join me in welcoming him. I hadn't realised I was serving at the bar, John, but okay. Um, let me just get my paraphernalia out, just for a bit of show and tell. Right, so thank you, John. Thank you, LSE. And um, it's a bit of a challenging audience here, because there's a few people on the GIS side who really know what they're talking about, so I'm a little bit worried. Um, but I want to keep with this theme in terms of the revolutions. Um, so what I'm going to speak about is the revolutions in these deserts of Afghanistan. But also in poppy cultivation more generally. We're often presented with this sort of typical image of the, of the traditional farm. And it's sort of, it's hidebound. It's, it's, it's held in state, in, in state, as if nothing's changing. And I want to really challenge that, that impression that people have. Tim's then going to go on next and talk about the revolution in, in technology, the revolution in how we understand about really challenging spaces, the sort of um, conflict-affected environments in which it is really challenging to do fieldwork, but we often hear about um, through various polling processes that the, the, the military do or ISAF or the government does in Afghanistan. These are understudied places and for, for legitimate reasons. But there are ways of generating knowledge on it, and Tim will talk in more detail, but I'll also, also reflect on it. I also want to reflect, you know, just say, on occasion, my presentation may sound like a, a sort of master class in poppy cultivation. Um, I won't apologise for that, but I will say, don't try any of these things at home. You never know who's in this audience, and particularly with Tim and his drones, uh, some of it's illegal. So... <coughs> The other thing is, the presentation has no grand policy descriptions, no solution to illegal poppy cultivation. Um, I think we need to, to, to ground the discussion in, in, in more of the, the realities of what's happening in rural Afghanistan. There's multiple realities. We can get into those grand policy discussions and, and solutions uh, in the Q&A, and there are even people in the audience um, who... <coughs> have an intimate and very unique experience on the policy process and can even join in, Peter, um, if you don't mind. So the attention is to, is, is to really assist in positioning cultivation in the different rural realities that exist in Afghanistan, as this should be what informs policy analysis. I know, hopelessly naive, but that should be what we're doing. So my intention is to move from the assumptions 
the media sound bites and the official narratives that shape our thinking and look at the dramatic changes that are taking place in Afghanistan, um, which are so rarely captured in the discussions that take place. And for me, this is essential. Currently, you know, I, I hate to quote Kellyanne Conway with alternative facts, but you know, we've been dealing with alternative facts in the drugs world, in the drugs policy world, for decades. And I think it's really important that we counter some of the official narratives that we have and ground our discussion in what is actually happening. So I'm going to use my images, pictures, to illustrate some of this. And it's building on the themes outside. I will also use my various paraphernalia. So without more ado, how do I get the presentation to start? Thanks, Adria. <coughs> it's trouble when you might have to multitask, you Thank you very much. It was as easy as that, you see? Man who's too old for technology. Okay, revolutions in the Afghan desert. So, this is the typical image you'll see in the newspapers. Lots of men out there harvesting poppy, unchanged. That's, these are Taimani coming down into Helmand, busy cultivating, incredibly labour-intensive crop. That's what we see. I want to go into something quite different in relation to what is actually changing over the last decade. Here we have Afghanistan, there's Halmanshir, if you've been part of the British government effort in, uh, in Afghanistan. And this is what cultivation typically has looked like. You can see a certain order to this. The houses, the straight grids of uh, contiguous land, and the canals and the roads. That's what cultivation looks like in the canal irrigated areas of Helmand. Now, what we've seen over the last 10 years is this massive expansion into, from these canal irrigated areas into the area north of the Bogra. Now this is desert land. This was untouched for decades. It is just, as John was saying earlier, it's just sand and dirt. And thanks to Matt and his GIF, you can see this expansion that has taken place. From 340 hectares of agricultural land in 2002, when we eventually... I said this was too slow, Matt. Until, until we get to 40,000, we get some slight contractions each year, 44,000 in 2016. And this is not just happening in this small desert area north of the Bogra. It is going all the way through the desert spaces into Farah. We've now got 300,000 hectares of extra agricultural land in the southwest alone, tell me a development project that actually achieved that. I mean, this is significant change that is taking place. Now, <clears throat> it's more than that, though. The donors and others have been unsighted on it. Red dots are the areas, according to the Central Statistics Office of Afghanistan. These are village, clustered villages. The black dots are the villages that actually exist in reality. Tim, Matt and his team have actually drawn polygons around every household compound that exists in Afghanistan. No one wants to see it, but they've done it. Um, and you can see just how many more household clusters exist out there than the Central Statistic Office acknowledges. So there's this entire population, 1.2 million people, back of a cigarette packet calculation, in, uh, on 300,000 hectares of agricultural land extra. So we're talking about a massive movement of population that is not being captured in any of the data that you'll see in Afghanistan. So, chunk of people 
moving out into these desert spaces, and this is typically what the process looks like. You move in, you put in a, a house where you put in your, first of all, you put in your, your diesel tube well, and you put in a house, and you typically grow a poppy and wheat. Yep. And then subsequently, more and more people come in, bringing this land in under settlement. <clears throat> so, in relation to, we just lost the top wording, but in relation to the changes in agricultural production that facilitated this, again, we have this image of Afghanistan, this time-bound Im- image of you know, traditional cultivation that involves oxen, when in fact, I mean, these, are, these guys are actually going off to destroy some poppy, but we actually have tractors abundant in many of these areas. This allows much more extensive cultivation that's taken place in the past. In relation to weeding, this is how you used to have to weed poppy. Incredibly intensive, it needs three to four weedings, and yet it was a great source of uh, being busy for both women and children, and subsequently payments of about I don't know, 400 Pakistani rupees, $4 a day for weeding, <coughs> for kids who had finished school, etc. And they would thin the crop and they'd weed it. Because poppy needs to be distanced to certain, have a 10 centimetres around each, around each plant to get a good crop. <coughs> and that's the final result. You can see how good that land's looking. But last few years, last five years, saw people using herbicides on this stuff. Paraquat, broad, uh, non selective um, uh, herbicide, kills everything. So there were techniques by which you would uh, spread it, use it on your crop. You'd take the lid off. You put it on the plant that you wanted to keep and you'd spray around it. You'd t- move the lid and you keep it incredibly time consuming, but less time consuming than weeding because it only needed that process once. So they were using these broad based, non selective herbicides. And what we've subsequently seen is a movement to selective based herbicides and even now advertising use on your poppy. These are Iranian, Chinese, and Pakistani-made, relabeled in Afghanistan. Well, I, I think they're relabeled in Afghanistan. We don't know yet. We're looking into this. I've just received these in, in March and shipped them over. Um, but they're actually advertising for use on poppy. Herbicides is one thing for me after, at that point, 17 years of fieldwork. But to see this kind of thing was phenomenal. And these are selective herbicides. So there's none of that messing around, putting the lids on and moving around. They only kill the weeds. They don't kill... Um, the plant's poppy itself. So that's the kind of technology change. And that is allowing people to grow larger fields because there's not as much labour intensity because one of the biggest constraints on expanding poppy cultivation has often been labour because it's such a labour-intensive crop. Irrigation. This is the traditional way you irrigate. You have a canal. It's your turn. You have a turn every so so often, depending on how much land you have and how much much, um, land is in the total village. And you will have an area here, and you'll dig it out, and you'll flood irrigate your plant. So that was the traditional way. Now, in the desert spaces, you use these percussion drills, um, and you drill down to 65, 90 metres, out in Farrah, even up to 100 metres, and you put in a tube well, and you put in a generator, and you just pump the water out. Quite costly because of the diesel costs are up and down all the time, maintenance, etc. Diesel is not very good quality. Um, another way you irrigate. This is uh, thanks to the uh, military forces. This is Camp Bastion. This is the what was it? 
So it's basically just leftover water that was from everything else. You see the wall here, you see a second wall here, and the water comes out, there's a holding tank here, there's a holding tank here, and the water from Camp Bastion was being used to irrigate the land outside it, including grow poppy. By 2015, Camp Bastion was not abandoned, but was much less people, and you can see the reduction in the amount of land. So it's always made me laugh a bit when people said, yo, poppy cultivation's gone up in Nari Siraj with our with UK military presence. Well, it wasn't just the UK military presence. It was actually they were helping irrigate some of it. So there's a variety of techniques that people are using to irrigate that land now. What's moved in the last couple of years, and this is something that's, again, rather impressive, is solar panel running tube wells. So now, to avoid the diesel costs, they are using solar panels. They fill this up. It's about one metre, two metre deep, up to, up to a thousand metres. I mean, when, we first, when, when Matt and Tim first came, said, we've got all these, these big pools of water. It's just before the Olympics. I thought they were going to run a good team. A lot of practice going on out there. But these reservoirs are basically being filled 24-7. Water's free now. No need to manage it. No need to worry about it. The evaporation, the loss of water into the ground, massive. So the environmental consequences of this are, are unknown at this point, but would appear to be significant over time. You have to wonder what's going to happen to these desert spaces. But this solar ta- power technology, you see the solar power imported from car- um, solar panel imported from cardboard outside, is just phenomenal. And what's happened, as you can see it here, you can irrigate with one of these things, you can irrigate about three hectares. Uh, and so it's, they perceive water to be free so they don't have to manage it efficiently and you see this was just shows you the massive expansion in this and what it can facilitate in relation to the, the um, expansion and cultivation in these desert spaces 2013, one area that we were looking at Shnajama, which we've covered every, every year and if not every six months since 2008 one of these reservoirs now you've got a unique sort of tell on what these solar powered tube wells look like. 2014, same. By 2015, we've got 35. 2016, there's 81 reservoirs. Now, the water table's been dropping by half a metre to a metre every year prior to this. Now the water's free, now that you've got solar powered tube wells, how quickly is this going to drop? And how quickly will this land become um, unusable again? So, that's solar powered technology. That has also facilitated some changes in the cropping. This is 2010. Purple is poppy. Green is wheat. Yellow is other. Thanks, Matt. I'm glad you're here. Um, 2011, massive increase in poppy. 2013, got the imagery for the rest of the area. This is all the crop mapping that Tim and his colleagues do. 2014, 2015, oh, 2016. First time since 2010 you've got more wheat than poppy. And part of this is because of solar panel technology. Part of it is the low yields of poppy over a number of years. But the solar power technology and the fact that water is free allows you to go wheat. Now, I don't anticipate this staying but you, because of the, the re- return of good yields and the return of good poppy prices. But it illustrates what can be done with the technology and how people can diversify their cropping systems when they have cheaper inputs. Next... That may look just like a normal poppy crop to you. Um, If it does, you probably shouldn't admit it. But that is a summer crop poppy. So in Helmand, 
for the first time in the last couple of years, we've ended up with spring and summer crops at Pompey. It's grown in the winter. It's grown between October, November, and it's harvested in, in April, May. And suddenly we're ending up with cultivars that have been planted in March and planted in, even in um, July. So, again, it's, so when you see the UNODC numbers on cultivation, and they say X, 200,000 hectares of poppy as they did last year, it's possibly a lot more out there this spring and summer. You need to check those stats. They're not completely inclusive. And the other thing, we're back to our friends who are doing the harvest, that traditional harvest that we're so familiar with. So, very labour-intensive, hard work, but the tools have been changing. If you look at these, and the some outside in the exhibit, they just um, actually had some made for me. They were, um, they were car... Um, there were springs from, the, from a car uh, from, um, and basically you cut them and you wrap them this is up in Badikshan subsequently they moved to a much higher tech Neshtar in the south and I, I believe there will be a little gift of one of these with your glass of wine later but in the south they actually now have four of these so every time you lance, lance you can lance up to eight times Every time you lance, the capsule is hardening and hardening. So the blade, you need a longer blade each time. So not, they've gone from just having one single neshtar to having four to maximise their yields again. And these are made, you'll sit, I'll hand them around actually. They're made from, um, be, be careful though, they do cut. <laughs> um, they're made from razor blades. Um, and again, the, the sophistication has moved on over the years. <clears throat> the other thing is, now you also have an opportunity for women and children to earn in the poppy harvest. What we've seen over the last few years, particularly in Badakshan, but also in the East, is women are getting the last collections. You basically use one of these, a rambai, and you collect the opium. So if that's your capsule, it's been lost a few times you collect like that. So the women get to clean the last sort of scrapings off the capsule and they get to keep that opium and sell it for themselves and for the family. Women are being paid in Badakhshan for harvesting the crop when previously they were just household labour. So there's these significant changes taking place in the way that this is working from a, from a household labour point of view and the incomes generated. Um, and then finally... Uh, just to say, you know, just to, as I know I've gone on too long, uh, just to uh, sort of uh, finalise my comments in relation to, despite all these developments, despite this impressive sort of process of change that is so rarely captured in the media accounts or in the official narratives around poppy cultivation and this idea of subsistence poppy farmers or traditional poppy farmers, we're nowhere near Australia. These are Australian combines. These are 35 hectare fields on average. An average poppy field in Afghanistan is one hectare. Some of those larger ones in the deserts are three. And that's because they're using these kind of things that, that minimise the labour content. But this is how you produce illicit poppy. This is what means that Australia can produce a kilogram of morphine equivalent at a tenth of the price of Afghanistan at illegal prices. And that's with the controls they have in place. And 
that is a big bloody field. Now we're nowhere near that. And this is why these guys can do it properly. And Afghanistan has a comparative advantage in illicit, illicit cultivation, but does not have a competitive advantage in producing the crop, crop legally. Because this is industrial production. Afghanistan's a long way away from that, but nevertheless there have been significant changes over the last 10 years in how they produce it illegally. Thank you. I do have a little fun video for later if we want to get onto eradication, but I will hand on to two at this point. So, thank you for having me uh, here today. Um, as, uh, as I was introduced, I'm Tim Buckley, I'm the Chief Operating Officer for a company called Alice's, based in Guildford. So I'm going to um, take the presentation onwards and talk about the technology revolution uh, that's been occurring and how we can use this uh, to improve our understanding of the conflict spaces in which we, we operate. ALSIS is a, a geographic information services company, uh, which means all of our, our work is focused on collecting, analysing and presenting data and information that has a, has a spatial, geospatial or geographic component. <coughs> So when I talk about the technology revolution, um, it's, it's the technology revolution that relates to, to my, my domain, my world, the geographic world. So I'll talk primarily about geographic uh, information features. And really, there's three things um, that have been changing. Um, you'll see I've invented a word I've called peacification. Uh, for me, or what I want to imply by that is, is the transition of technology that was once primarily or solely designed with a military purpose in mind uh, the movement of that into, into mainstream usage of, and civilian applications. Talk about the proliferation uh, of this technology. More and more of it is coming along. Uh, technology is increasing. Uh, the speed of technology advances is increasing exponentially. And the democratization of this technology. We're all now um, getting our hands on this technology. It's becoming part of our everyday lives. So firstly, uh, when you think about satellites, and I'm talking about Earth observation satellites, so these are the, the satellites around about 800 metres, um, sorry, 800 kilometres uh, above the Earth's surface that record um, reflected energy from the Earth's surface. And typically we understand that as, as pictures. It's the, the visual um, elements you see in an image taken from space. <coughs> so back in the 60s, um, the only people who were, who were using satellites for uh, spying purposes primarily with the, with the US and the, the Soviets. Over the years, commercial companies saw opportunities there and um, applications for using that, that imagery in, uh, for civilian purposes. And that uh, um, these companies were, were launching space vehicles and making that data um, available to people who were prepared to pay uh, high costs to access that data. And now um, we're, in a, we're in a world where more and more uh, commercial vendors are, are building their own satellites. And the barriers to launching satellites, which were previously the size of a size and weight of a, a London bus, we're now down to washing machine scale objects that are going up there and can be launched far more cheaply. So that, that imagery and the data that comes out of these satellites is now far more ubiquitous and we're all familiar with it. Secondly, um, there's the technology that's around uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, as they're sometimes called. Again, uh, developed with a mili military um, uh, goal in mind, 
Um, over the years, fewer years, something like the last 30 years, the use of drones, again, has started to filter down into, into our world, into, into the civilian world. And so anybody with a couple of hundred pounds can go out there, can go to a shop, can buy a, a drone and capture imagery or data, other sources of data, sorts of data, um, of their own accord, and it's freely available to the general public. Another piece of technology, which again has made that peacification uh, transition, is around precise positioning. Um, what started as global positioning systems, or GPS, as a technology for putting nuclear def- weapons or missiles in a very specific location, we now use to find out where the nearest Starbucks is, or to find our, our, our way to an event like this. So we're, we're all familiar with that, the application of that technology. And finally, you know, almost all of those technologies are now finding themselves in, in these devices that many of you, well, probably all of you, carry around with you all the time. And this concept of the citizen as a sensor, an individual being able to utilise, you know, in the camera on your smartphone, it's a similar sort of technology to that which is found in modern satellites taking pictures from space. <coughs> the GPS that you have in your uh, GPS receiver, again, has been derived from um, the systems and uh, receivers that were developed for military purposes. And the ability to capture information very accurately and transmit it to the other side of the world um, is now available to all of us, and it happens in seconds. We're we're, we're totally used to it. Uh, And someone on the other side of the world can then take that information, can know where you've taken a picture, can understand content from that picture, and derive information and value from it. So in summary, the trend is, you know, costs are coming down all the time. Um, the quantity of these, uh, these technologies is increasing exponentially. With increases, increasing numbers uh, of these sensors and, and devices around, the availability of data is, is becoming far more readily available. And also the quality of the data that we can collect from these sensors is increasing significantly. In the early days... 15, a 15 meter resolution pixel um, would be considered you know, a big deal that was a lot of information you had, a, you had some valuable information there now we're looking at 15 centimeters so satellites in space being able to uh, identify features on the earth's surface around about 15 centimeters in size so that's how the technology has been, uh, has been sort of evolving and, and moving forward so then how can we use this, or you know, how is this important when we look at understanding um, conflict or complex environments? So it's important to understand the nature of the environments in which we, we uh, operate. So they're often dynamic and unstable. Um, you know, events that can happen at a very local level can quickly expand and start influencing um, uh, strategies and policies you know, up to the national level, and that can happen very quickly. We've got multiple and complex factors going on there. It's very difficult to understand and, and get below the level of the surface. There are affiliations between tribes, between uh, religions, between ethnicities. There's um, uh, linkages and relationships between political ambitions and between financial uh, relationships that exist. And because of the nature of a conflict environment, there's very little reliable data often you'll find um, either the data simply doesn't exist. Uh, you know, in terms of a, the development of the country, there is no reliable data that has been previously collected. Or the data that is collected is, is out, out of date, inaccurate, 
and can't necessarily be used for the purposes that we need to, to use and understand it to make the decisions that need to be made. And then as a donor, your ability to actually get out there and firsthand understand the needs of the people that exist there, what their problems are and how you can best affect them is very, is very limited. You know, the environment at best is difficult and most of the time is very dangerous. So as a donor trying to design, plan and implement a project um, that will have an effect on the population, how do you, how do you collect the, inf the data and the information to fulfill those, um, those, those, those gaps and, and you know, develop a policy that meets the needs of the, the individuals? Do you rely on polling? Do you rely on sending third party surveyors out to collect that data for you? Are you confident they're going to go to the right place, speak to the right people, collect the right information you need? And this is really where um, we can apply some of that revolution in, in the availability and the sorts of data that technology is bringing us and how we can use it to help us understand these environments. And so I want to talk about three things. Firstly, where the people are. Um, as Dave's talked about briefly, um, you know, in, in a conflict environment, people will move very quickly, um, move away from the conflict area, they'll be driven by a variety of factors. It could be informal settlement um, from uh, displaced people, or it could be slightly more formalised, where um, a local power broker, or, or indeed the government, is establishing a new area for people to move into and building roads and putting down some routes there. But at, at the heart of this, it's understanding where the people are. Um, and you know, the problem we faced in Afghanistan was this lack of reliable data about the people. How can you design a project or programme that's going to impact people if you don't know where they are and you don't know what numbers they're in? So the process we used was enabled by all of this all of that technology, the, the, the massive wealth of satellite data that was being collected over Afghanistan, meant to cover the whole country in a sufficient resolution. We could actually look for these residential compounds um, across the whole country and individually drop a, a dot on each household that we saw there. And three months later, and bit of repetitive strain injury later and some very sore eyes, we have 4.4 million points on the map. So when you've captured all of that data, you can then start to look at where the densities of the people are. You can look at, count the number of compounds within a 100 metre square or a 1 kilometre square. So you can look at a city, see where the dense areas of housing are, see where, as, it, as the city spreads out, where the, where the population numbers drop off until you develop a map which is you know, with complete, current uh, and comprehensive and accurate across the whole country which maps uh, the location of all those people. So now we know where the people are and, and, the, and the numbers of, of where those people are. The next thing to understand if you're, if you're looking to, to implement a change and, and develop policy is to understand what their situation is, their, uh, their, their livelihood situation, their socioeconomic situation. Are they advantaged uh, or are they disadvantaged? And we use a number of indicators, again, driven by the technology that, uh, that is now available to us. So in this instance, you're looking at the change in, um, in light over time over Kabul City. So in 2006, you can see the extent of the city defined by that stable nighttime light. And over the years, the extent of the city increases as more and more people come in. And also as the electricity supply becomes more reliable, more and more people have access to it and the lights are on more frequently. Another indicator uh, we might look at that uses the, the precise GPS positioning uh, coordinate data is to look at security incidents. So every time there was a, um, uh, an incident, a, a violent incident in, in the country, 
the location, the precise location of that incident would be recorded, along with some um, attributes about it, the, the severity, the nature of the attack, and these kind of things. And by mapping all of those points and plotting that time, that series, um, or the incidents over time, you can quickly see whether the focus of the incidents is and how the, the changing security situation is evolving as it ebbs and flows, as new areas become you know, hot or kinetic. <clears throat> and so start to understand or, or have a layer of data that will help you understand the situation for the people that live in that space so I talked about a couple of layers there um, but what we do is we collect hundreds, literally hundreds over 120 different geospatial data sets where all of that information is, is mapped and um, categorised across time and space and using a process called multi-criteria analysis you effectively lay these coincident layers on top of each other, and so you have a stack of data. And at the end of that, you, um, you can merge all of that data together, and the output is a map which records you know, where very positive events coalesce and where very negative events coalesce. And so if you're trying to design a program, it will help you understand you know, where, the haves, where the people who, have, who are advantages, advantaged live and those who are on the peripheries, those who you know, don't have access to um, reliable water, whose agriculture is failing repeatedly, uh, who don't have much diversity and can't get crops to, to market. So all of this information you know, forms the evidence with which you can start to develop an effective policy and a plan to seek to change some of these factors. And it also you know, gives you a baseline. You've got a, a capture, you've captured in time and space the situation and as it evolves, you can keep monitoring these factors and see how things are changing on the ground. So that was, uh, yeah, um, looking at how we can how we can use technology. Uh, one moment, if you would mind. If I give you the nod, if that's okay. Um, that was how technology is helping us collect this data and, um, and, and build a picture and analyse it. What technology can also do is help us present this data. Um, you know, there's a, previously, we've, it'd be fair to say, we've struggled. Our information becomes, or the, the analysis we're trying to present can be quite complex. Um, you know, it's buried in weighty reports that you know, have a significant thud factor when they land on a policymaker's desk, um, but the likelihood of it being read and were still understood is... Um, is, is debatable. So we've had this problem of you know, trying to present information in a way that the end user can assimilate and understand and then seek to um, uh, you know, develop programs that, that are cognizant of that information. So this is something we've, we've done recently and it's, it's proved very popular. Rather than you know, providing 300 pages of maps, stats and data, um, summarise it in a, in a video with moving images, GIFs, etc., um, and it's we found, and the feedback we've had is um, it's, it's an effective way of passing that, that knowledge across. So, fifteen years ago, this corner of southwest Afghanistan was nothing but sand. Following the fall of the Taliban regime, people began to come to this and other deserts of south and southwest Afghanistan in growing numbers. Using percussion drills, farmers sank wells into the ground up to 100 metres deep. Then, with affordable diesel generators and pumps imported from Pakistan and China, these farmers transformed what was once rocky desert soil into productive agricultural land. 
By 2013, there was an extra 300,000 hectares of agricultural land in the southwest of Afghanistan alone, providing homes and land to as many as 1.2 million people. However, by 2013, at its peak, there were also signs of growing environmental stresses in these former desert areas. Growing levels of salination, the monocropping of poppy and poor plant husbandry had led to consecutive years of low opium yields failure and some farmers, particularly the land poor, unable to meet their production costs and feed their families. Some farmers left the desert and went looking for new land where they thought they might be able to make ends meet. Many persevered in the desert, conscious of the shortage of land in the well-irrigated areas of southwest Afghanistan, and hoped that their crop would eventually recover. In response to this, some farmers installed solar-powered tube wells, thereby eliminating the 450 litres of diesel they had needed to irrigate each acre of land and dramatically reduce their input costs. What started as a few isolated farmers became commonplace and by 2016 over 13,000 solar-powered tube wells could be seen across southwest Afghanistan. This shift to solar power technology in the deserts of Afghanistan has supported crop diversification and a shift to wheat, conscious of the repeated failure of their opium crop. The environmental implications of this dramatic uptake in solar power technology are hard to predict. In the past, farmers estimated the groundwater had dropped up to a metre each year since moving into the desert. Now that the area is awash with solar power technology and water is considered free, there is little incentive to manage it efficiently. The implications of draining this groundwater will undoubtedly be felt further afield. Surely it is only a matter of time before this area once again returns to desert. But what are the implications of the loss of livelihood for the 1.2 million people who currently live in these former desert areas? And where are they to go when the water eventually runs out? So that concludes my presentation. Thank you very much. Great. So we had two really excellent presentations and I think highlighted two very different aspects of this. The first is the kind of, uh, I think, the traditional geographer perspective uh, highlighting basic understandings of what's going on on the grounds and, and, and as David highlighted so much of the discussions on drug policy take place in Vienna or in New York or wherever it is and are completely divorced from actual realities on the ground and the data often I think would have at, at best I think you would call it suspect at times and in, at other times you'd, I think you could be extremely critical of how it's derived. Um, but what Tim showed is that new technologies, I think, are actually, the revolution in technology is actually providing a new basis for, for designing policy, for evaluating whether policies are working, um, and where actually governments can do more and can have a better understanding of, what, of what's happening on the ground and also what development policies are doing. Um, so I think there was, I don't know if there was cause for optimism there, but it certainly was very interesting, it was interesting to see the two side by side. All right, I think we've got about 15 minutes left, so it would be great to throw it open to the floor and get some questions. So just raise your hands. Yeah, we've got one over here, and I've got one in the back there. <coughs> Najim Abbas from the East-West. East-West Institute. Um, any suggestions about crop replacements which require lesser water supply and increased chances uh, for a sustainable uh, change. Uh, so are there enough encouragement, inducement, incentives provided to farmers, walnuts, saffron, pomegranate, etc.? Any ideas? Thank you. Uh, we'll maybe take two or three questions. So we have one other over there. So. 
Aditya Akashik, a student at LSE. Uh, I was just wondering where areas, um, like where does the demand from opium primarily come from around the world? We have one final question, or should we move straight into these? Yep, we have one over here. Jim Thomas, Stickard researcher. Yeah, it's just a general question about the economics of it. Um, you mentioned Australia and illicit production of opium. In Afghanistan, you've got the Ill illegal, illicit production. H how does the economics of all this work? I mean, you know, is there a proper um, alternative crop production that's, that's economically viable com to compete with opium? Okay. Uh, David, do you want to take up, go first perhaps? Sure. I mean, your two questions are somehow related. Um, there's no miracle crop. Um, the pursuit of miracle crops has turned this man in the back grey. Um, there is often this this focus on the crops. Some of the crops you mentioned, it's it's, it's pomegranates, it's it's apricots. It's it's this idea that there's something that somehow will compete with opium poppy economically, and that has uh, and that technically can be grown in these kind of environments. But opium plays a multifunctional role. It, it, it is, it's a low-risk crop in a high-risk environment. That's its advantage. Um, even when the price is low, as it currently ha as it has been, well, the, pr the returns are low. Even when the returns are low, people persist with it because of some of the symbiotic relationships between landed and landless and who's actually making the money. I think one of the challenges often when we, we talk about economic viability, we go to the UNODC numbers and they tell us, this is the profit margins on poppy. And those returns that they offer us are gross returns on a unit of land. They're not actually net returns. They look very attractive, but when you actually break down because of the labour costs, because of the irrigation costs, because of all of these different input costs. It's an incredibly input-intensive crop. The net return on the crop is actually not necessarily as high as you think. And the net return, according to socioeconomic group, is very different. If Tim is a sharecropper and John is the landlord, I think that's probably the economic relationship <laughs> that exists here, um, Tim is walking away with a, th a fifth to a third of what John is walking away with. John provides the land, he provides the farm power, he provides the water. Tim's working his butt off, and 80% of, of the cost of production are labour, and John is giving him a third of the crop. In the desert spaces, he's only giving him a fifth of the crop. So Tim is actually just making ends meet. The reason Tim grows opium poppy is because he's good at opium poppy, John will employ him. So Tim wants the land... He wants to grow some poppy, of course, because that's the condition. But he also wants to grow some wheat. He wants some water for his livestock and his family. And he gets a house. So Tim's reasons for growing poppy are fundamentally different from John's. John walks away with two-thirds of the crop, maybe even uh, four-fifths. And he sits on the opium and sells it later in the year. He's laughing all the way to the bank. You can tell by his suit. Right? <laughs> so the reasons that we're growing opium poppy are fundamentally different. So how do you compete with that? One is labour-intensive, uh, a crop like poppy is labour-intensive. So Tim's always going to come and to work for someone like John. And as long as John can get away with it, he's going to do it. Now, apricots or saffron or all these other things are fundamentally different labour and land-tenure relationships. Saffron is a crop that you 
primarily grow in the, in the spring and summer anyway. It doesn't necessarily compete with poppy. Apricots, you need to have own land, and suddenly Tim is no longer employed. Many of these people who moved into the desert spaces moved there because the ban on opium poppy in central Helmand meant that John was not growing poppy any longer because he grew wheat. And because he's growing wheat, and it's only 54 person person days per hectare versus 360, he doesn't need Tim's help any longer. So he's growing wheat, Tim's out of pocket, Tim goes, heads west, young man, finds land north of the canal and grows poppy. So many of these crops that we come up with solutions actually play a role in the relocation. It's not about crops. It is about a broader process of development. And we keep looking for these magic bullets. As I say, that man over there was turned grey in the process of a permanent undersecretary coming back from Afghanistan saying, why aren't we doing more on oils for, uh, what was it, bio, biotechnology or... Why aren't we doing more on apricots? Why Ashraf Ghani might come up with a suggestion on an X? Why? And you're meant to run with this. There are other people in this audience who also either lost their hair or turned grey to this process. And the challenge has been is saying, you know what? Enough. Enough of your miracle crops. This is about a broader process of stabilisation initially and then development. And without one critical thing, um, that stability and security to actually go about growing crops that aren't just annual, but are fr- say fruit crops where you're waiting three, waiting three years for a return. But it's about non-farm income. I need something where Tim no longer relies on the land because he hasn't got any and wants to go off and grow poppy. I need him to have a job. And once you raise the opportunity cost of labour, and if you look at that's what's happening in Thailand, that's what's happening in Pakistan, that's what's happened in the former Yugoslavia that used to grow poppy, that's what generally happens in these processes. So there's a broader process of development that we're familiar with, which is actually people leaving land, particularly where we have these very high population densities per unit. So the economics are not always in favour. They are in favour for some, but that doesn't stop people like Tim carrying on growing. And that group has been ignored by many development projects. The Helm and Food Zone completely ignored them. It basically worked on wheat and a few high-value ve- high um, vegetable crops and, fr- and some fruit trees. Um, most of the programs that we've seen work with the landed and not the landless. Balloon effect. Um, so I hope that answers your question in relation to um, crop replacement. It's, uh, the crop substitution model really needs to be killed, but it keeps re- in, re- revisiting us like some sort of poltergeist that uh, keeps us up at night. Um, Dave, just on, um, on that, that substitution thing, one of the things that we, one of the activities we've done a lot um, using our sensors is to look at where um, you know, development projects have gone in with a plan to replace poppy with a another high-value crop. Um, and you know, in, in a lot of the instances where we, we've used We've carried out the crop mapping at a very detailed scale. You, know, you can see the, the community over a period of time because the, the satellite imagery is constantly being collected. So, you know, they're growing poppy, and then, bang, in comes some development assistance, and you can see the fields are replanted, and, you know, there are young saplings in there, and they've sort of been um, encouraged to grow a, a crop like um, almonds or, or apricots. And maybe for a couple of years, in the imagery, you'll see the trees there, and then... You know, maybe a year later, they're grubbed out, and then it's straight back to poppy. Um, so, you know, using using our techniques, we can help inform Dave where where these things are taking hold, or where they're being implemented, where they're taking hold, and where. Whereas Dave said, you know, that substitution effect just isn't sustained. 
I mean, we've done evaluations together, myself and Tim, and, and the guys at Elsys, and, and you know that's that's really where you see the fundamental changes are. It's you know, where you see poppy not replaced by a crop, but by a variety of crops, not just in the first season, that winter season, but also in the spring and summer. And aside from that, you have this non-farm income opportunity. So we basically did a review in Nangarhar, a massive uh, program that was operating there, and we found around these these provincial centres this incredible movement into diverse, diverse cropping systems. And it wasn't necessarily that people were moving um, into high-value crops in the winter season, but it was the spring and the summer. And so often people are trying to replace poppy over its cropping season. And in fact, you need to look at the, the broader cropping patterns and what growing a shorter season crop allows you to do, growing crops that where you can grow multiple crops on a unit of land rather than poppy only or wheat only uh, that's often one of the major problems we have with a lot of the analysis that's presented it presents crop by crop comparisons, gross returns actually what you need to look at is net returns on a cropping system plus the fact that I'm no longer growing poppy at 360 person days per hectare I'm now doing other crops and that's just freed my son up to go and find a job in the city and now he's getting you know, 10,000 $10, Pakistani rupees a month with a, a, a zarange or a, a taxi or something now, that is where you see real shifts. And what we've um, done with the fieldwork and the, the imagery is shown where you see these enduring reductions because of this diversification of on-off non-farm income, as well as improvements in security, versus where you see poppy go down, see it replaced by wheat. You can guarantee poppy's coming back. And if you look at what's happening in Helmand this year from what we're already picking up is that's where we're going in the canal area. Poppy is being, the wheat that was coerced, that was pushed on people, is now being replaced by poppy now that the insecurity is building once again. Poppy replaced by wheat, forget it. It is not something you ever want to go near. One is a food crop, one is a cash crop. One is high, high inputs, one is, is, is low inputs. These are not things that are comparable, but we've gone there from a policy point of view time and time again, and we need to be looking at these broader systems, these broader livelihoods. Um, and quickly, the demand question, maybe. Do you want to address that, Dave? Um, as best I can. I mean, demand um, in Afghanistan has been growing. There is a significant problem within the country. We know the problems are in the region, in Pakistan, Iran, former Soviet Union. The thing with Europe is, I mean, John, you can ask this better than I, in terms of stability in relation to opiate use. Uh, I mean, that's, that's been a phenomenon over the last few years. So a lot, a lot of the growth that's been taking place in in the use of opiates from Afghanistan is in, with his, is in within the region, former Soviet Union, and of course parts of Africa now. Um, so it's, it's less of a, although we get 90% of our opiates from Afghanistan, is the estimate, um, there is a lot that's being consumed within the region. Okay, uh, does anyone else want to jump in with some additional questions? Yeah, over here. Didn't tell me you couldn't ask. No. <laughs> No, make, make it an easy one. <laughs> uh, we've talked a lot about technology tonight, uh, both in the field uh, in terms of uh, APM production, but also in terms of monitoring it. So a further technical question, and I'm, I'd be very curious from a crystal ball gazing perspective, but... Assuming Google and Facebook's efforts to make the internet access 
ubiquitous globally over the next 10 years are successful. And whilst acknowledging low levels of education in Afghanistan, yet high levels of mobile phone ownership, what will this democratization of connectivity have on potential opium production in the future? Thanks, Andrew. Who in? <laughs> yeah. Be selling it on that. You'll be able to buy a kilo in, uh, and get it delivered within an hour for, uh, <laughs> on the dark web. Drone, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as well as agricultural advice. Um, Realistic. You know, something in that. I, mean, I know it's a flippant answer, but why not? I mean, uh, did you, I don't know if you saw the reports recently in uh, UNODC, and the, I'm always a bit wary because there is a, the, the usual red maps and the scare tactics, but the, the crystal meth production in Afghanistan is allegedly taking off, which, you know, who's the consumers you know, for that? Where's that coming from? I mean, is how, what's the validity of that case? So, I mean, these, this information flows, and it flows quickly. Uh, the sort of Technologies. It always makes me laugh. It's always Mr. Big. It's always the Taliban. It's this sort of Tony Soprano character who's moving all the pieces across the jigsaw, across the board with in relation to herbicides and, and tube wells. And it, it really removes the agency of farmers. It really sort of implies they're all daft. Um, they have incredible capacity to learn. They have mobile phones, so they know about the price of tomato in Peshawar or Quetta. Um, move it up to Kabul. They know about these technologies. The herbicides are being sold locally. They've learned about the tube wells. They're not daft and they don't need a Mr. Big. So there is this democratisation of knowledge around agricultural inputs. So why shouldn't there be more around the sales? At the moment, um, it's hard to imagine, but then again, I couldn't imagine fertiliser herbicide bottles with, with opium poppy on the, on the front. But... Um, can't dismiss the fact that it would will, it will have an effect and certainly make a market that's much more fluid and flexible. But it, for me, it's a bit hard to imagine that it's going to permeate at, at this point, particularly given the fact that Taliban don't like smartphones. <coughs> so that makes it very difficult. Makes it difficult from a fieldwork point of view. Makes it difficult from a, getting some of the imagery around herbicide use. Um, tal- if you go into an area with a smartphone, you will get hauled over and you'll be lucky to get out in one piece. Uh, they like a good old, the old, good old-fashioned Nokia's acceptable. You must be uh, chuffed with the reintroduction. Yeah. <laughs> so am I, because I still use that one. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, pretty much what Dave said, I think the ability to, you know, the potential, they're already using this technology to, to understand markets and prices, so, you know, I'd imagine, you know, more of that linking the the farmer to the trader uh, to the uh, to the trader to some agent who's shipping and moving the crop becomes easier. Um, but yeah, given uh, the the difficulties that Dave's talked about there and the, the reluctance to adopt some of this technology, you know, a little bit crystal ball. It, it strikes me that we're always looking for these, and I think this is what you've both highlighted in the substitution issue, is we're always looking for these drug-centric solutions. It's all about the drugs. Um, we could also imagine a situation where they can actually produce opiates from vats within the next 10 years, and they have a fully synthesized form of opiates which negates the entire need to grow opium. That is a technical possibility which would ultimately destroy the listed market because you could produce the opium in the capitals of Europe and the United States. So we could as easily see that kind of transition. 
But what strikes me from these presentations is that's not the question here. The question here is a fundamental development question where these communities are reliant on a certain crop, and that crop has certain spillovers and certain implications for security and international development. But there's all sorts of other issues here that David and, and, and Tim have highlighted around the water supply and things like that. And fundamentally, what happens if 1.2 million people lose their livelihood in a, in a relatively short period of time? What does that do to issues of migration in Europe and the surrounding areas? What does that do to stability in Kabul? Things like that. And I think that's when we stay with these, what I think at this point we could call the old questions, the substitution question. Why can't they just grow something else? And actually start to see it. This is a part of a broader holistic development set of questions that we face in the country and the region. I think that's probably the step forward we need in terms of policy. Okay, we probably have time for one final question. Yep, up the back. I was just kind of on the back of what you were saying. What is the purpose of bioconstructives on the left? They've settled in for the long term. I mean, the water table in, um, in certain parts of, of the, just north of the Bogra and Helmand is about, it's about 15, 15, 20 metres in terms of depth. But they've dug wells down at 80 metres, 90 metres. If you go into Farah, much further into, into Bakwa, they're down to 120, 130 metres. So these guys have settled. Um, they don't have it. When you, when you talk to them about some of the challenges they face, many of the people who initially moved there, there's been this process of migration over time. Many people who initially moved into that area grabbed land or they were gifted land uh, and some subsequently purchased it, and they didn't have land elsewhere. Um, the subsequent wave of immigration has been one of, of Tim, the sharecroppers, coming in because they've had less economic opportunity in the canal, because poppy bans or because of population growth or next generation who don't have as much land, etc. So those who only have land in the desert spaces have no intention of leaving. This is home. I mean, you saw once you start to get those contiguous pieces of land. I mean, they've got houses, they've got motorbikes, they've got solar panels, they've got these deep wells. They have no intention of going. So they're aware of the consequences, they're aware of the water table dropping. You know, it's always an approximate half metre, one metre. One of the things we're trying to do this year with um, ARU, who we've been doing all this work with, is to actually measure the groundwater and measure it over time, over the next three years. Um, we're measuring the salination because you can see that's a consequence of some of the environmental uh, the, the, that's the environmental damage of some of this farming in these these desert spaces. So they're aware of the con- they're aware of the the issues around farming in such a space. Um, but where to go would be their answer. Do I go to the village of my mother's that my mother's from, which is basically saying I've got nowhere to go. Um, there are these. If I can't have poppy, I can't live here, but what am I to do? And I think this is, as John was saying, this is the big fundamental. Is opium poppy, or sorry, illegal opium poppy has facilitated the settlement of this land. If you had legal opium poppy, they wouldn't be able to afford to, 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 to live out there. They wouldn't be, have the means by which to, to pay for this, uh, the agricultural inputs. So they live up there, and they've been had four consecutive years of poor yields until 2016, and they just say, inshallah. And they find a son who can go and work in the city or they find a, um, uh, another son who might go and uh, work on someone else's land. But really, what are the choices? So they've bedded in. They will continue to stay out there as long as they can. If Poppy comes back to the canal area, as it, as it seems to be doing, they may split their family up and some of them can go back to the, the canal and some of them will still stay in the desert. 
So you'll have these households that are split. But um, they're aware of the long-term implications, but you don't live in long-term in this kind of space. It's the season. What we see is the far more fluid and, 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 and flexible group is, this, is the Tims, is the sharecroppers. And they just have to make ends meet, so they just will move accordingly. Um, but I think with the solar panel technology, the return of good yields, more of them are going to go into the desert this year. And I suspect, judging by early indications, you're probably going to get more poppy this year in Afghanistan than ever under Peter's watch. Um, and he was guilty of some pretty bad figures at the time. Tim, do you want to say a final word? Um, yeah, I think from uh, you know, that, that question and, and considering um, the data, as I said before, you know, there is a complete lack of data about the, the aquifer system um, from which these guys are extracting the water. So you know, we, we don't really understand the groundwater and how it's moving, but um, you know, it's certainly a, an aspect of the analysis that, that we're very interested in. And to understand the downstream consequence, so, so where the Helmand River continues um, travelling down and sort of comes out into Iran, um, to understand how the abstraction of water upstream is having an impact downstream would be, um, would be, would be fantastic um, and some analysis that I think would be you know, very insightful and, and useful to, to our work. I mean, I, don't, I, th- I think the thing, the point around the out-migration is I don't think anyone thinks that this, this group of people are going to end up in the gates of Europe um, because they don't have a livelihood in Afghanistan. But they're going to end up in the gates of Kabul. They're going to end up in the gates of Lashkar. And that crowds out public services in those kind of spaces. So that could end up lit with other people leaving for Europe. But this is 1.2 million people. They're just forgotten. They're ignored. They don't exist. And they're growing. And they have a livelihood that is... is it's, it's fragile. Um, and, they will, and they have a history of moving. On that optimistic note, um, I want to thank, thank you all for coming tonight, I want, and I want to thank our speakers for what was a very interesting set of presentations and a great Q&A. So a quick round of applause.